Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. And welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Now, before we start, this one comes with a bit of a health warning. If you're listening to this whilst eating your dinner, you might want to go away and come back after you've finished your digestion because this is probably going to get a bit gross, but in a good way. That's because we're going to be talking today about Napoleonic era surgery, medicine, and the human cost, crucially, of the conflict. Now, I'm massively lucky to be joined by Michael Crumplin, a retired surgeon and archivist and curator at the Royal College of Surgeons. He is the hugely respected author of a number of books on medical history, including Men of Steel, Surgery in the Napoleonic Wars, A Surgical Artist at War, Guthrie's War, The Bloody Fields of Waterloo, and Waterloo After the Glory, which was co-authored with Gareth Glover. Mick, it's great to have you on, even though I'm not sure my squeamishness in A-level biology dissections is going to stand me in good stead for this. How have you been? Yeah. Oh, fine, thank you. Um, it's very good of you to arrange this, Zach, and I'm pleased to get the opportunity to speak out for the much-suffering soldiery of our uh, British Isles and also, of course, the medical staff who endeavour under great odds to try and undo the damage inflicted on them. Thank you. No, it's, it's my pleasure. I mean, we've been talking about this for a while, so we've been keen to, to actually realise the opportunity to, to interview on this. Let's start with you, first of all. What drew you into writing about surgery during this period? Well, I think as a teenager, I was always very interested in the Georgian era and its military, both naval and in the British Army. And um, when I did medicine, there wasn't much time for anything else, but I realized there was going to be a very uh, suitable blend of um, surgery, medicine, and uh, the British Army and the Royal Navy. And uh, I think that came together eventually in a book I wrote called The Men of Steel, because both patients and surgeons had to be very tough to deal with this, and also the implements to kill uh, are not sometimes unlike the instruments to mend. So it seemed to be an appropriate thing. And I think the overriding um, issue that I had was that a great deal of uh, mediocre and very 
good military historians had simply no concept of the suffering and the darker side of war. And you know, it, it just is such an omission because if anyone here of us had been on those, for instance, the Battle of Waterloo or Leipzig or anywhere, we would have been absolutely horrified about it. And as you know, men didn't talk very much after their wartime experiences, particularly in World War I. And that again is a pity because if the politicians were put in the front line, they might uh, bend their strategies in different directions sometimes. So it, I, I think medicine uh, is an important part of military history. And as you say, there is this striking void when it comes to Napoleonic history in contrast to, for example, World War I, which you've mentioned already, where we have been talking to a degree about <coughs> this. I mean, obviously, post-Crimean War, we start to talk about Florence Nightingale, and so it sort of moves a little further out, more sort of centrally from the periphery than it is during this period. So your work, in my opinion, and it's only my humble opinion, has filled a, a really important void that, that was at the heart of this. Shall we start with the, the nature of what surgeons are doing during this period? Because it's pretty horrific stuff. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, give us an idea of how these operations are actually carried out. And to our listeners, this is the point where you're gonna to want to hold on to your stomachs. Well, I have to say that I'm always a little bit careful not to overshock people. And of course, uh, presenting people with horrific data is another reason why it's never been done. Uh, the other that a lot of medics have never written about things that they ought to have done. But I suppose the commonest procedure in surgery after a battle is looking at a wound if the patient survives and it, uh, stopping any immediate hemorrhage um, with uh, instruments, ligatures, or just simple digital pressure, or, and bandaging them up because there is nothing more comforting to a, a wounded serviceman than to have his wound covered, stable, and not bleeding. Um, there were, of course, other minor procedures like splinting fractures that they had to be held steady so that they, the bone could heal. Um, also, um, removing debris from a wound. A lot of missiles carried unwanted secondary missiles into the body, which uh, cause a secondary infection later on. And so there would be an, an endeavor to remove the missile that caused the damage in any clothing or coins or anything else that had been put in. And then we go on to more um, uh, sort of dramatic things like um, amputation, uh, which really up until the English Civil War were not widely practiced because they were often fatal and um, the surgeon would be culpable in that circumstance in, a, in a, over time in a, decrease, a decreasing manner. But in these uh, Napoleonic wars and the wars against Republican France, uh, there were many bad injuries caused by civilian problems and also, of course, uh, ordnance and musket balls and case shot. And they, if they were going to cause massive soft tissue damage, uh, continued bleeding or joint injuries, there would be a definite indication to remove the limb. Now, if surgery is horrific, I can assure you that wounding is too. And so is the threat of death to a soldier. And there aren't many soldiers who wouldn't undergo half an hour of the worst pain they'd ever had in their life and six weeks of misery with infection uh, rather than death. And these soldiers had weighed that up and there's absolutely no doubt that surgery, um, that, you know, soldiers did refuse surgery. 
<clears throat> that was easier for an officer to accomplish than a man. But nevertheless, yes, surgery was, was pretty horrible, but then so was wounding and death was a, a, an option. Now, we mentioned perhaps uh, limb surgery. Limbs were the most commonly injured things, parts of the body. Cranial, chest and abdominal injuries were more difficult. Um, with chest and uh, <clears throat> abdominal injuries, there was little that could be done because intracavity operations without anaesthetic, muscle relaxant and proper support wouldn't be very successful. But a lot of soldiers survived chest and abdominal injuries because the ball, um, if it perforated the gut, the gut would be sealed off by the fatty apron in the abdomen called the amentum or a fistula, a communication between the gut and the skin would form. And these fistulae would close in the course of time. A lot of soldiers even passed their musket balls into the colon per anum, uh, which uh, is, is slightly amusing and very nice for the patient. <clears throat> but bleeding on the battlefield due to intracavity penetration was the commonest cause of death, as indeed it was in World War I. And then lastly, trepanning. Well, I think between the wars of the American independence and the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, the use of the trepan was used increasingly cautiously and carefully. And there was a surprising amount of understanding amongst the better surgeons of when to apply a trepan, when to make a little neat hole in the cranium so that you could get access to bleeding or elevate a depressed fracture. And by the end of the war, trepanning was often successful. There were some remarkable results. So that briefly covers some of the procedures that could be done. There were many other um, procedures like repairing the windpipe after suicide attempts and so forth, which were very remarkable in many cases. I think one of the biggest problems with surgery at this time is we do not know what the average regimental or ship surgeon was like. There was no quality control. But I've read so many diaries, so many accounts of surgery, I'm quite convinced that it would follow the bell-shaped curve. At one end, you've had absolutely natural surgeons like Guthrie and Larray and people like that. And at the other, you'd have people who are alcoholics who couldn't lift a knife for the love of money, you know. So most of them were fairly decent chaps who did their best. It's jolly difficult to be on a ship or in a regiment if you're not going to give of your best. And I think the so that really puts surgery in perspective. And I'm sure the readers realize there was no anesthetic Alcohol was not given uh, prior to surgery or during it. It doesn't help. It's not an analgesic. And so even uh, notable casualties like Nelson only had three doses of laudanum after his arm amputation in Tenerife. So pain relief was poor. There were no intermediate analgesics, no general anesthetics, and men were brave and it was pretty difficult for the surgeon. Luckily, often being operated in the upright position, many patients fainted during surgery, which was a welcome relief to them and their surgeon. So in a nutshell, that's really what this pretty horrific surgery was all about. I mean, there are so many questions straight away that stem from that. Can I go back, first of all, to what you were saying about these surgeons themselves? What sort of training do these men have before they're trying to save these men's lives? It's, it's a pretty mixed bag. I mean, if you were lucky and you wanted to be a surgeon and you uh, were apprenticed with fairly wealthy parents who would pay for the apprenticeship, you were 
um, apprenticed to a good surgeon for maybe five years. You would start off doing very menial tasks. Gradually, if he thought you were competent, you'd be left with more responsibility as today. And then at the end of the apprenticeship, uh, the indenture would end and the student would probably walk the wards for about two years, being a plaster man or a houseman, for which privilege he had to pay. And then uh, during that period, or during apprenticeship, he could go to courses of lectures in anatomy, um, pathology, materia medica, midwifery, and so forth. And indeed, a lot of these surgeons who were away in the armed services for years had to go and refresh themselves back into civilian life afterwards by repeating the lectures and so on. So basically, that was it. And at the end of it, there was a, an exam. Um, I'd been the senior examiner at the Royal College of Surgeons and was very interested in examinations. And I think that um, it was pretty rudimentary. You had 10 examiners sitting in a semicircle around you and one of them would take you away and ask you a few questions. And then you would be uh, had to produce your evidence of training. And that was it. So you got a diploma, not a fellowship as today, uh, with more formal and written exams. So uh, that was the training and it just, you could train under an apothecary rather than a surgeon. And it did, it, it, again, like today, it depends very much who your trainer is. If he's a good leader, course leader, you will learn, but you have to have some uh, competence as well. And are these men respected within their regiments because of their ability to save a life or is there evidence of surgeons who weren't particularly good at their job being resented within their unit? Do we have any evidence of that kind of thing? Um, surprisingly little. It's rather like PTSD and combat stress. We don't know an awful lot about it because I think most of the time um, people learnt on the job. And to be fair, the best training school for a military or naval surgeon, particularly a military surgeon, was at war. He soon had to become competent. And I think there would be mutterings to the um, commanding officer and to the uh, principal medical officer on the field if he wasn't competent. It seems to me that most of the medics were respected and um, uh, treated uh, fairly uh, decently, not as gentlemen. I mean, they were, they were really regarded as civilians in military clothing until I think, 1795 when proper ranking and uniforms better pay, better pensions, reasonable terms on length of service came in. So I think that um, it was a mixed bag, but you wouldn't last long on a ship or in a regiment if you were very alcoholic or very incompetent. And let's face it, some of these guys would be better at physic than surgery and others. Sorry. John Hunter, the great father of scientific surgery, who was actually Inspector General uh, for three years of the British Army before he died suddenly, he brought in that no surgeon with extreme operative ability should serve in a regiment and that all regimental surgeons should um, pass through a short period of hospital training as today. Um, so the quality control until Hunter was pretty awful. But I think because of the huge amount of experience when you're abandoned with your regiment in Spain, Portugal, Americas, wherever, uh, <clears throat> you, you soon learned how to militarize your medicine, really, I suppose. So if you were going to receive any of the wounds that you talked about um, a few minutes ago, 
is is there a preference are, are there certain wounds that if you got it you'd go oh well you know what i got off lightly there as opposed to others because of the medical procedures well i think um sort of wounds i would in brackets like to receive <laughs> would be soft tissue injuries that didn't damage bone because bony infection and non-union and malunion of fractures was a huge problem as you know uh, sepsis was inevitable but head and neck wounds if if slight were good because they head and neck has a terrifically generous blood supply and therefore things heal well and i think i would much rather have a wound of the arm than the leg there were twice as many leg wounds as arm wounds in surviving casualties and during these wars which is always interesting and it's probably because of falling shot and low aim um, but uh, so I prefer an arm wound, uh, a slight face wound or head wound, uh, and certainly something that didn't damage bone. And what were survival rates like? Because my admittedly limited understanding is that because primarily due to infection, survival rates weren't brilliant and, and you have issues with a lack of disinfectant. Yeah, um, well, Larry, when he came back from Russia, uh, mused over his results and he gave overall, and one has to remember he's including fingers and wrists and less threatening things, although every operation was a threat, every wound was a risk of 20%. But that means that 80 out of 100 of his patients survived an amputation of uh, larger or smaller uh, type. And I think the, if you're looking at hip joint and upper thigh, you're looking at you know 90% mortality. Knee joints, ankle joints were dangerous. Um, so on the whole, the results were better than you think. But surgeons were attuned to disaster and disappointment. And I can tell you uh, as an ex-surgeon that when you lose a patient from an unexpected problem, which you tried to avoid, it is a very harrowing encounter. And it must have been more so then, but then they were used to it. It's like comparing soldiers of today with 200 years ago. They come from a different uh, socioeconomic group. They expect more. They're fit when they start, and they expect 100% attention from a good medical team when they're injured. Um, yeah, infection was very common, but it didn't necessarily kill you. I'm sure you're probably aware of the phrase laudable pus laudable pus, praiseworthy pus. This is when you've survived long enough for the infection to consolidate, uh, collect all its dead tissue together, the body's overcome it and it's ready with an abscess or a deep infection and you've survived. So when you get pus, you've survived infection. I can't give you uh, the actual survival rates of sepsis because it would vary tremendously between a severe intra-abdominal wound and a minor wound after a flesh wound of the arm. Uh, <clears throat> but the mortality would range from, from 0 to 100%. So, it, but it was very common. Infection was very common. And does that play a, a factor in aftercare? Is there sort of an inevitability of infection, um, bearing in mind the lack of understanding about what we now consider to be basic routine hygiene methods like washing hands and so on if you had an amputation would you likely be resigned to a strong probability of infection or was it considered to still be a lottery oh, the former definitely i think infection was in, in, expected particularly with bony or 
injuries or injuries that had a lot of tissue destruction because what was not appreciated was that in modern military surgery you have to what the French call debride or radically remove every bit of dead or dying tissue which the anaerobes that is the bacteria that thrive in a non-oxygen environment can can thrive on so debridement was discussed briefly by Larry, but there's a big misconception that it was widely used. In fact, in Britain, the, the use of debridement was um, not written about at all very much, really. I, I guess there were more fastidious surgeons who would um, clean out the wound better than others, you know. But uh, no, the, the, the principle of debridement wasn't there, and infection was very much an expected issue, I think. I've heard a myth that salt was known of as a disinfectant, but only used sparingly. Is there any truth in that? I've never read about that. Uh, some people say the same thing about alcohol slightly later than this war. Um, I mean, salt will be a, a hyperosmotic um, thing, which will draw fluid out of the wound. I suppose it could help in that way. But no, we, I mean, the, the main combatant technique and theory of um, the gaining of sepsis in, in patients was based on Galen's four, four humours. Um, and bleeding patients, making them sick with emetics, or giving them diarrhoea with cathartics, uh, was um, a very common way of pretending that you could avoid sepsis. And it was called the anti-phlogistic regimen, which was a low diet, which was sago, rice, bread, milk, that sort of thing. No alcohol, greens or vegetables, plus um, regular bleeding of the patient, venipuncture, and emesis and catharsis. And that was thought to lower the chances of a patient's getting infection. And uh, again, as you probably know, bleeding was uh, being phased out from 1830 on. So it was still pretty commonly done, especially for head and, um, head and chest injuries in the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, it seems slightly mad that one of, you, have, you have a patient who's ill and one of their medical logic for some is to remove blood from the patient uh, in a time where now we, we know how <clears throat> blood is but as you say it goes back to the the, the four humors doesn't it yes galanic medicine but they knew nothing else it's quite interesting you occasionally read of a uh, an observation that uh, i mean there was one fellow in some part of the um, peninsula war i forget where but he was so worried about the transmission of a particular kind of sepsis in his wounds that he put patients that were uh, not dressed by the same technique next to ones that had ordinary technique and some of them missed out on infection but it was never written up and <clears throat> they knew about contagion they knew that one you know if you remember the out outbreak of um, uh, anaerobic sepsis in Bilbao in 1813 they knew that was they, they knew to isolate people as they did with the uh, plague in Egypt so there was an isolation policy but um, they thought it was something in the, the air, the miasma, rotting vegetation in swamps, all this sort of thing. Emanating from the great term of malaria, of course, from the Romans, bad air. So really the transmission by bacteria was not yet understood. Um, 
there were ideas about it and separation and good ventilation and enough bed space. But once a bad, uh, you know, the, it, all these theories that you read about in the books, you know damn well that when these guys got on campaign, everything went to the birds. You know, there were so many casualties, not enough doctors, nobody with the right authority, you know, because, you know, medics didn't have much authority at this time. They were very much subservient to their commanding officers. Um, which is a big problem sometimes. So in the Peninsula War, obviously there are issues with supply of even basic things like rations for troops. Do you have regimental surgeons complaining about the fact that Wellington hasn't clue, isn't clued up about medical needs? Or do you feel that Wellington understood issues of medical supply as much as other areas of supply? As a commander, I think he was Wellington First Duke of Wellington was probably the best doctor in the British Army for several reasons. One is he did care about adequate number of surgeons. He did care about provisions. You, you know well the stories of his provisions with difficulty in the Peninsula War. Uh, decent clothing, um, particularly moving men out of situations. I know it didn't go very well at Burgos. But, you know, if you move men out of that, less people die. He wouldn't take on something that he wasn't pretty sure of winning. And that's why he was a popular guy. And he was pretty distressed when there were large loss of life at some of the sieges, which always uh, worried him, of course. So in the way of preventative medicine, Wellington was very, very uh, good. And he was more consistently uh, efficient with his, uh, the health of his troops than, than, uh, than Napoleon, who was intermittently interested. But there were problems because there was never enough transport for the wounded. And you know the row that McGregor got into in 1812 when he pinched some commissariat transport for the wounded. And Nelson, uh, sorry, no, <laughs> Wellington lost his rag completely with him. Uh, but that was soon forgiven. But there was never enough transport for the wounded that, because these huge numbers of wounded had to be taken away. And many of them died through lack of transport and adequate removal is sad. I want to talk to you a little bit about disease if I may because the common misconception for this period is that most men died in battle and of course once you start to read in some depth into things like casualty lists and returns to the dead and so on it quite it quickly becomes apparent that if anything disease is really the main killer. So what treatments were there for the ailments and actually what were the, the most common ailments that these soldiers are suffering from? Well, I think up until the Franco-Prussian War, um, disease was the biggest killer, as you rightly say, and then it reversed. Um, <clears throat> um, the commonest sort of admissions to hospital were seasonal illnesses, but particularly bowel infections, which had a relatively low mortality, but caused a great deal of discomfort and um, unwellness. And then febrile illnesses, which were ill-defined. Uh, some fevers like plague and smallpox and um, benign tertian malaria were, were well recognized because clinically they presented in an obvious manner. But without the classification, uh, the nosology, the classification of disease is known as nosology. Nosology was very infantile at that time, really, and primitive. And people were often miscategorized there were many causes of fever, as you know, all sorts of different viruses and odd bacteria that are rare today. 
and uh, later in the century it would be TB, which was relatively uncommon in the, in the peninsula, but TB later in the 1830s in Britain became the big killer. So mainly it was seasonal illnesses, diarrhea, and fevers of various sorts. And you know, each, I mean, you've got the ophthalmia in Egypt with the uh, eye infection, you've got smallpox in North America, You've got, uh, if you read Martin Howard's excellent account of the disease mixture in Walcheren, you've got uh, benign tertiary malaria, dysentery, and um, feb other febrile illnesses all compounding to make a very sick army. And the actual figure, if you look at peninsula figures, is that about one in five soldiers died in combat only. So four-fifths of the deaths were due to disease. And of course, one mustn't forget heat, stroke, climatic conditions, poor clothing, like in the retreat to La Coruña. And starvation was another problem too, both the civilian and, and, and the military. In the Royal Navy, it was even less. Only 6% out of 103,000 Matalos and Marines died in combat. So shipwreck, fire, explosion, foundering and accidents and disease were the common killers there. So it's a very important point this. I mean, I've always been aware that surgery is quite a small part of medicine and perhaps least important. If you cured everyone of illness and lost all the surgical cases, you'd still have a good fighting thing. But of course, as you realize, surgery is a much more dramatic and interventional um, treatment. So it's much more interesting with instruments and surgical training and surgeons' personalities and the way patients handle their wounds which is very varied <laughs> you mentioned earlier about malnutrition it, it seems like an obvious point to make but these men are drafted into the army usually because of issues of being able to find enough employment on a, on a steady basis to be able to feed themselves in other words they're already potentially malnourished before they get there they go on campaign and they're malnourished. What impact do you feel that has on their prospects across their army service when it comes to basic illnesses, but then also recovery from a battle injury? Well, of course, to take it to the extreme, um, malnutrition goes hand in hand with a lot of diseases because of immunosuppression. And I'm sure Ed Koss has talked to you about that. Um, the dietary supply, I think Wellington did the best he could, was, was not very good and it was very varied and there obviously was enough fruit and veg around for the British Army because they didn't get scurvy. And you see that scurvy occurred in modern places like Scott's Expedition, etc. Um, you realise um, you, you, you need fresh fruit and vegetable, which in the peninsula wasn't a problem. I'm pretty sure that Napoleon's army in Russia from the summer to the winter, a lot of those became scorbutic. And in the Royal Navy, you have very little scurvy providing you're on blockade duties. If you start wandering on long expeditions away from the supply fleets, you've got problems. So I think, um, you know, malnutrition is, is, uh, was endemic, um, as Ed Koss figures have shown. But, um, but actually, when you have somebody who's slightly hungry all the time, and, and you, you know as well as I do, the British and the French soldiers were very good at finding food where there wasn't any, um, not many people 
for instance, in the Peninsula War, soldiers in the Peninsula died from malnutrition. They didn't. They had enough food and they didn't have coronary artery disease and they didn't get strokes. Admittedly, they didn't live long enough to get those diseases, but atheroma was not a problem. Um, so uh, it was a very uncomfortable existence. And when people broke into cities by storm, uh, food and wine were most welcome, I'm sure, in plentiful amounts. Yeah. I feel we really should talk about mental health as well. Uh, there, there was very little recognition of what we would today recognize at PTS, as PTSD, although that's not to say that as a condition, it didn't manifest itself, even if people didn't recognize it as PTSD. I mean, certainly I see court-martial cases of people who are found wandering the countryside, having abandoned their unit in combat. And reading through the court transcripts, it feels like sort of classic, what we would today describe as PTSD. So what appreciation was there of mental health disorders and how were they dealt with by the army? Well, melancholy and homesickness were recognized also, um, stress, you know, irritation and fighting and murder, uh, suicide, more common in the Royal Navy than the Army, possibly because of the enclosed space in which the Navy had to form relations on a continued basis. Um, very little reference in all my reading at all. You're quite right about desertion. And of course, that mimics what happened in World War One, sadly. But um, I think there were couple of things which are worth remembering about mental health. One is this was the best buddy system in the world. There's no doubt that whether they tried to get close to each other as friends, and I think most of them did, and it was pretty tragic when one of them was destroyed, you'd help your colleague. There are countless uh, um, stories about men being put on carts or somebody carrying their equipment for them or and sometimes they were just sick, they were just left, left to die. So um, the buddy system, I think, helped to avoid a lot of what men go through today. The other thing is that the, the combat was different and short-lived. You had a battle usually on one day or part of a day. That's very different from being in a trench and being shelled for two weeks tour of duty in the front line. They're completely different stresses. Also, of course, You've got to remember that the guys out fighting in their red jackets had come from a society where to lose your leg or have a fracture that didn't heal, you lost your leg, you were on the poor at home. Um, your wife would lose maybe half her children in childbirth. There would be periods of starvation, extreme physical effort, uh, as you rightly say, pointing out to many of them moving into the armed services to escape the drudgery and hard work. But um, these men, I think, were inured to suffering. They were used to pain and sadness and difficulties. And that is why they're different from people today. Today, we expect everything to be good in a way of diet, care, welfare, mental health, and so on. They didn't expect it then. So I think PTSD probably uh, was a lot less common than it is now for those reasons. The toughness of the soldier then, the buddy system, not being uh, exposed to long periods of men being blown to pieces uh, and buddies dying around you all the time. So, yeah, I think that's probably the reason. Sadly, we have no figures to back up these things. We have no idea. 
Um, but I do know that uh, suicide was probably more common in the Royal Navy. That's the only common comment I would have taken a mental health problem to its extreme. And why do you think that's a particularly that's particularly the case for the Navy? Well, you're in an enclosed space. You have um, commanding officers, junior officers, petty officers who can be extremely savage. Uh, you know quite well that Nelson wasn't particularly a flogging admiral. Uh, there were many who were. And also people would be put, picked on, bullied. Um, you don't seem to come across racial prejudice, but that's difficult because there are very few black or brown sailors amongst uh, the Royal Navy and, and in the army, but that doesn't seem to be a problem. But I think it's, if you didn't get on with someone, there's no way you could uh, it would be easier to escape him in the army and the regiment than it would on board ship. Um, so that's, I think, why things probably went wrong in the Navy more often. But a lot of this is speculation. There's no hard data, you know, on it. That's the problem. While we're on the topic of the Royal Navy, one of the things that I know will really interest listeners is the fact that you were an advisor for the medical procedures that were filmed in Master and Commander. And I know you've done work on a number of other media productions as well on this area. So tell us a little bit about what that was like, because it always strikes me that Master and Commander made a really concerted effort to get it right in a way that some other sort of popular history productions mm -hmm. and films really don't. Um, so, so what were your experiences doing that? Well, um, the, the request came through the College of Surgeons for an advisor and actually all that happened was that the producer and director and Paul Bettany came over to the Royal College and we, we worked out how operations would be done and what the reaction of the patient would be. And what is, was so impressive was that the, Paul Bettany was an amazing actor. He could immediately understand what was needed of him. And um, so we produced instruments and showed him how to handle them and so forth and went through the operations and talked about the child who had his uh, amputation and so forth. And um, <clears throat> uh, the doctor taking out his own musket ball and so forth. Um, so it was a wonderful experience, really, and I, you know, I, I was interested in the subject anyway. And actually, there was a subsequent <laughs> production on board HMS uh, it's, uh, Trincomalee, uh, uh, saying, um, you know, what was this really? What happened uh, on board ship with surgeons? And I was asked to advise on that as well. <laughs> but um, I think. Um, I liked the film, not, nothing to do with myself and, and that, but I thought it gave a very fine impression, um, as Patrick O'Brien always does in his books, of what life was really like in the Navy. It was pretty much dr drudgery, weather problems, becalming, storms, loss of life through accidents, um, trying to find somebody, difficult navigation and so forth. And... You know, I just thought it was a superb production. I'd like to have seen another two or three films made like that. And why not do something in the British Army, like Death to the French, that wonderful book um, of about a rifleman who was abandoned or got lost and wended his way across the peninsula. But I guess history doesn't appeal to everybody, although the number of productions that we see both on the media and in books would make you think otherwise. It's a very interesting subject. Agree. And that was a, it was an enjoyable film to make. I mean, it was it was uh, very expensive 
And I think that was one of the problems, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, listeners who would be very happy to see a Master and Commander 2 or 3 or even mm. 5. I mean, if they can do it for Pirates of the Caribbean, why can't they do it for, uh, for Master and Commander? But uh, I'll leave that to the <laughs> Hollywood producers. Um, yes. One of your areas of particular interest, I know, is about the limitations of surgery. What what advances do we see during this period in terms of medical understanding and in terms of how to enable a, a patient to survive surgery by conducting the procedure more efficiently? It's, it's a, that's an extremely good question. If I can sort of take a broader approach to it, in the Navy, I think the advances much more than the Army were in public health and disease prevention because that ship really had to run efficiently. So ventilation, fumigation, diet, happier seamen, properly clothed and looked after, often with very good commanders. Was he, and, and, you know, with Gillespie and Blaine and Lind and Trotter, we had some marvellous um, people who would bash the government into doing the right thing and the Admiralty Board. And I think that was a great success story. That's not to say that in the Navy there weren't some jolly good surgeons. There were people like BT and... Um, uh, various other guys who did really some quite amazing feats of surgery on board ship. <clears throat> and in a way, you're more isolated there than you were in the army. I think mainly in the army, the greatest advance was the militarization of surgery. You see a little chap like Guthrie, who trains up from being a, a very bright spark, obviously getting his diploma very young and so on. Uh, and welding himself into the army, understanding what's needed by his commanding officer, knowing the way to the men's hearts, doing his best for them, having a combative spirit. Um, so in general, the army uh, bred some extremely good surgeons. I think by the end of the Peninsular War, we'd far outstripped the service to Sante of the French army in technique and organization. Um, as to sort of specific improvements, I think in amputation, the design of flaps rather than a guillotine type of amputation so that you had more soft tissue to cover the bone was a huge advance. When not to trepan a skull uh, was understood. Uh, the attendance at post-mortem sometimes on uh, when you were in, in, a, in a stable situation. Um, the French army brought in a very efficient evacuation system called the flying ambulance, which we unfortunately never emulated. It was, there was a big effort made in 1819 to copy this, but I think Wellington and the country had had enough of war and they weren't prepared to spend the money on starting again. You know, we won, we were good enough, don't change it sort of thing. With parsimony, it was a huge um, bar to progression. So that was a... a a bad thing about it. Um, what other um, operations? I suppose, again, Guthrie was a prime example of breaking all the rules. I mean, after Juidad Rodrigo, he withdrew all his patients away from major hospitals where infections and contagion would soon gobble them up and put them into small villages away from the main town. And that was breaking the rules. And he got told off for it. But he was right. And uh, it was conciliated that he was right afterwards. So isolating patients, pre preventing disease, a few um, operative uh, things. Uh, Larry had a particular way of disarticulating the shoulder. Um, and really 
not a huge, you, you, you can't really make a lot of surgical progress until you can put the patient to sleep and fight off infection. But I think there's no doubt that the results, um, the mortality amongst all brought in alive after Toulouse, uh, the officers had a mortality of 8% and the other ranks of 12, which is really quite amazing. I mean, you think, I know there are a lot of minor wounds, but don't forget also a lot of people with minor wounds didn't go to a doctor. So I think it's probably fair to say that by, by Toulouse, everything was as in good shape as it could be. And then everything went downhill towards the Crimea where everything went wrong again. So we did learn. We were, you can just show by results that things were improving. And if I can pick up on what you said there about minor wounds and the fact that actually quite a lot of these soldiers, if they had a minor injury, wouldn't present themselves to their regimental surgeon. What techniques did people have if they were going to self, I'm reluctant to use the word self-medicate, but sort of self-treat, mm. if you will? Well, with minor ailments, that was just, you just put up with them. I think with, say, a finger was shot off or something, you'd probably go to the RMO and have it bandaged up and he might look at you once or twice. But essentially, you might not even figure in statistics. As something else that Guthrie did that hadn't really been properly done before, he kept results. He even did a trial on non-amputation for femoral fracture. Um, so he was, I hate to keep quoting him, but he was so outstanding that um, he led other people and he printed his results. He wrote home and publicized it all he could. Um, yeah, so I think statistics are really important because you can show how bad results were at the beginning of a conflict and how they improved by the end. And I think um, a little degree of public health, good nutrition, prompt treatment, knowing when and how to amputate and not to be gung-ho about things and perhaps have a good senior surgeon. If you're an assistant surgeon to a battalion, you learn a lot. There's a lot to do. I mean, there were hundreds queuing up at, uh, uh, in, in various peninsular battles awaiting amputation. The experience must have been phenomenally good. Mick, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I know everyone is going to want to read up more about this. Tell people where they can get your books because there are quite a few of them. Um, you've, you've mentioned Guthrie a great deal, which I know you've written on. So where can they find your books? Well, um, Men of Steel went out of print some time ago, but Chris Buckland at Naval and Military Press has decided to, uh, he rang me up and offered to reprint it. It's not quite um, some of the illustrations aren't quite as uh, they're a bit dark but it's it's good it's a good reproduction men of steel so you can get that from naval and military i think he's going to do surgical artist at war because they've run out too and he's got some copies of guthrie's war and then the bloody fields of waterloo ken trotman and um the latest one um is uh, helion press um on waterloo after the glory so yeah Absolutely. So, folks, I can't um, urge you enough to, to go and see what you can find online because they are great reads um, and you will enjoy them enormously. Mick, thanks so much. It's been an absolute, absolutely brilliant interview. Well, Zach, it's kind of you to take the time and we all admire your enthusiasm for keeping all this going. Hurrah. That was surgeon, historian and curator of the Royal College of Surgeons, Mick Crumplin. You can follow Mick on Twitter at Michael Crumplin, and as you've just heard, 
His books are available to order online now. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the drill. The conversation continues online. On Twitter, search for at ZWhiteHistory, and in the forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net. Post your comments, questions and requests, and I will get back to you. Equally, please take time to like, share, retweet, and leave reviews on your preferred podcast platform. It all helps. There's a lot to look forward to on The Napoleonicist. Next time, I'll be talking to Andrew Dismore and Mark Thompson about the lines of Torres Vedras and the organisation that seeks to restore the fortifications and educate people about this important element of the Peninsular War. I want to take a moment to also make you aware of another initiative which I'm very proud to be a part of, so apologies for the quick publicity poll here. Starting in October, I will be co-presenting a brand new podcast called Khaki Malarkey. This is a weekly military history review podcast where we'll be taking recent publications and talking to their authors about their research, experiences and the wider context of what they've been writing about, and crucially, giving you a bespoke discount code so that you can enjoy some money off the titles that we feature. I'm hugely lucky to be working with the brilliant Olivia Smith and equally brilliant Phoebe Style on that venture, which is affiliated to the British Commission for Military History. So, if you're up for more military history, or fancy widening your knowledge by listening to something that covers all periods and aspects of military history, then definitely give us a go. We are on Twitter at Khaki Malarkey, and we will be on all major podcast platforms. And the prequel goes out on the 29th of September, ahead of our first proper episode on the 6th of October. This podcast will be back on the 7th of September for that special feature on the lines of Torres Vedras. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. Socially distance where you can. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.